Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. NBC and Walmart are proud to present a live telecast of Rodgers and Hammerstein's The King and I, featuring Pitbull as the King of Siam and Lena Dunham as Anna. I'm just letting that idea sink in. Out of respect for the performers, NBC asks that you not go on Twitter or Facebook to say mean things about this production or its cast. Seriously, do not even think about reaching out to all your friends to make sure they're watching so you can all drink wine and do mean tweets. The last thing we want is millions of extra viewers who are not committed to the magic of this musical. There's still time to sign up for Shazam 3, the app that lets you talk directly to the performers for $19.99 per minute. And now, The King and I. Oh, Bangkok is so crowded and the people are half naked. But Lewis, my dear child, don't be afraid. Fauda wouldn't want us to be afraid. Do you know what I do? I whistle. Whenever I feel afraid, I hold my head erect and whistle a happy tune so no one will suspect I'm afraid. While shivering in my shoes, I strike a killer's pose. Hey, this is really terrible. You can't sing, can you? Who are you? Could you please stop speaking in that fake-sounding accent? I'm just part of the viewing audience, but this is costing me $19.99 a minute. My, my, Lois, Bangkok certainly is full of peculiar people, including this ruffian who apparently doesn't believe that actors can stretch themselves and find new dimensions. Let's hurry along and find Pip, I mean the king. Ugh, see, that's typical. Just because he has a shaved head, he should play the king? Why didn't you get Dr. Phil? He's bald, too. Wow, that is a great idea. How come nobody thought of that? You really have a knack for casting. Can I give you my card? Hello? Uh, He must have used up his minute. Before we return to this live musical event, get ready for the nose. They'll be talking about Peter Pan, an essay about cultural obsessions, and a sore loser in the book world. And now, Bill Clinton's understudy in the NBC Live Music Man, Colin McEnroe. Really, if they don't have, uh, they are talking about doing an NBC Live Music Man. If they don't at least think about Bill Clinton, they're fools. Because he basically is Harold Hill. Uh, the more you think about it. Yeah, yeah. you got a point. 76 trombones <laughs> led the big parade. I mean, who doesn't want to hear that? Come on, who doesn't want to live tweet it? All right, so joining us today on the nose, uh, writer and critic Rand Cooper uh, from the Mark Twain House, uh, Lord of All That He Surveys, Jacques Lamar, uh, and from Trinity College, Irene Papoulos. Uh, 
and we will be talking. We'll have a quick discussion of last night's Peter Pan, although Rand refused to watch it. Uh, and uh, we'll also talk, uh, go from there with, to a fascinating essay by Willa Paskin, critic for Slate magazine, talking about how culture is kind of ruled by obsessions these days. We'll explain a little bit more about that, but uh, using uh, things like Serial and True Detective and maybe even Peter Pan Live as an example, the way people kind of focus in on something and take a peculiar and perverse kind of pride uh, in it. Uh, a little bit later, we will talk about Ayelet uh, Waldman, who uh, didn't make the 100 notable uh, books list of the New York Times book review and got really upset about it. Uh, and if we have time, also, Rand uh, guided us to a fascinating essay about the difference between wheat culture and race culture. If we have time for that, we will get to it, too. Uh, so, uh, but we have to begin uh, because we have to, because because. Jacques and I spent so much time at our keyboards <laughs> last did. night um, commenting on this. So, I mean, I think as most people know, uh, NBC has um, committed itself to this idea of kind of restaging on, on live television, the way television used to be a lot more, uh, old musicals. They did it last year right at this time uh, with The Sound of Music, uh, Carrie Underwood uh, and uh, the vampire from True Blood. Uh, and then, I don't even know his name. Uh, and <laughs> so this year it was Allison Williams, who's one of the stars of Girls and is perhaps perhaps not incidentally, the daughter of Brian Williams, uh, as Peter Pan, uh, and Christopher Walken, uh, who uh, was playing Captain Hook. He may not have been notified that he was playing Captain Hook, but uh, he did wake up and find himself in a costume and do the best he could uh, to uh, to play Captain Hook. Uh, and, and one of the things that had happened before all this started was that Allison Williams had kind of asked people, you know, really don't do that mean tweeting thing. Don't. You know, don't drink wine with your friends and, and use social media to say mean things about this, which, of course, quintupled the audience for this. Uh, and uh, as that announcer was suggesting, I'm sure NBC is really happy uh, when people decide that they're going to do this. Um, but, you know, I mean, Jacques, I'll start with you, uh, a theater guy and a theater critic. Um, uh, one possible take on this is that NBC is going to wreck the great musicals of our memories <laughs> one by one. Is there some other possible take on this? Well, you know, I mean, it, 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 as in, you know, any piece of, of theater, because I think technically what they did was fine. Mm -hmm. You know, it, to me, it comes down to the casting and how the thing is, uh, how they choose to direct it. And, you know, they're, they're casting people who are not live theatrical performers. Christopher Walken is, mm -hmm. but, you know, the choice of Carrie Underwood and, and, uh, Allison Williams, clearly they, you know, have picked people who aren't necessarily up to up to that task. Uh, and I don't know what the rehearsal process is like, how much time they have, but um, apparently Christopher Walken was not able to make a good half of those <laughs> rehearsals. So, um, so I mean, I, I applaud it. Would I rather have seen a really well-staged, not-live thing? Yes. And, and we have to say, to be fair, I mean, the 1954 production of this is, I, I think— for, in its own way, a kind of a fabulous thing. It could just be all the associations that we have. Um, by the way, as we go along here, our number, 860-275-7266. We're li live in the afternoon, 860-275-7266. It's a very peculiar musical in the sense that I think there are, let's see, five different composers slash songwriters who were involved in that. And then there were songs that 
last night that came out of nowhere. I don't know where they're from, but uh, I see if I can rattle them off. It's Julie Stein and Comden and Green. They came in later. Uh, Moose Charlap and Carolyn Lay, I think, wrote the original uh, set of songs for this. But it was an up-and-running musical, which they then kind of converted to a 90-minute TV special. But So everybody kind of was well-oiled and had their chops. And I mean, Mary Martin and Cyril Richard are just a lot better anyway than Allison Williams is and Christopher Walken was. But they did have the advantage. They had a lot of practice <laughs> before they did this live TV. I mean, why not do the you know like the live at Lincoln Center kind of things with things that are running? Or now they're they're showing them in movie theaters, mm. a la the Met. You mm-hmm. know, why not take something that's kind of up and running, or maybe on its last gasp, and give it a give it a shot in the arm rather than kind of you know these made for TV events that are not as eventy as we hope. Um, and Irene, you watched this on your brand new television set, which I think is not an, an uninteresting thing. Yeah, and also it was DVR'd, so I watched sort of half of it last night, the last half, and then I watched the first half in the in in today. And I had never seen something like that. I, I don't always watch things like that, but I loved Peter Pan as a child. I loved the Mary Martin. We had the record, and I knew all the songs and everything. And so I thought it was really interesting to see everything close up, including the wires that were holding them up and the the detail, the incredibly intricate detail of the island coral and all that, you know. But I and so and I got caught up in the um, in the story. It's interesting, Jacques, that you say it's all about the the lead performers. So that that really is your that's your bottom line. That's all about well, the leap. No, I, I, you know, the thing is, uh, I was kind of discounting Peter Pan in and of itself, the story and the music, because they are what they are at this point. They're just so, and so, yeah. it, you know, how they choose to stage it really is going to come down to: do they cast the right people? Yeah, and, you know, I mean, if it was a new musical, I would say, of course, is the musical stage worthy. Yeah, but Peter Pan has definitely proved it's worth. Yeah. You know, w- one thing that, um, despite the fact that Irene DVR'd it, and the, the fact that she used said DVR it like it's something she does all the time, although, in fact, we know <laughs> that's not necessarily <laughs> true. Um, but I, I, I'm going to wrap Rand into this conversation, too, because one of, the, one of the rationales that NBC is giving for this is, I mean, they're very open about the fact. They said, look, people, they don't watch television together anymore. Uh, people have multiple DVRs in their house, and they watch things whenever they want to, uh, and nothing, ever, nothing really pulls the whole family together. And so we really want to do that. So they can all watch a lot of Walmart commercials. And we want them to watch something live so they can't fast forward through the commercials. We want this to be this live event. This is why we're doing it. And so as we were getting ready for the show, I said in an email, well, I'm sure Rand and his daughter Larkin will be watching this. Not really considering that this is actually a three-hour musical starting at 8 p.m. on a school night. Yeah, we actually, uh, when we, the three of us, my wife and daughter and I were watching the NBC News, Beforehand, and they did a rather lengthy promo uh, puff piece for it. Um, Larkin was very interested in it, but since she goes to bed just about the time this is going to start, when they got around to announcing that this was going to be tonight, you know, I just paused the TV and and then fast forwarded over that because we didn't want her knowing because then it was, it was uh, school night and she's not going to stay up till eleven o'clock. She's eight years old watching it, so that that wasn't going to happen. Um, but but yeah, go ahead. All right. Well, I was. Gonna, I just want to say something about. So this was the first time I'd ever watched anything. It was DVR, and I have to say, so I couldn't figure out. My boyfriend wasn't there. I couldn't figure out how to fast forward in the commercials. And can I just say something about one of the co- commercials, which was, you know, I was enchanted. So I would say that I, I like Peter Pan or any musical. I sort of, I'm a very naive viewer. I just get into the enchantment of the whole thing. 
And so I was enchanted by it, but I th- I was sort of brought back to life by the the Walmart thing where the the guy had a the guy had a fairy helicopter, you know, like a fairy flying fairy, and he was showing it to the kids. And the mother said, "Why does a grown man have a flying fairy?" And then the father says, "I'm I'm just well, I'm just pretending it's a helicopter." And he's sort of embarrassed. And I thought, you know, it's sort of like Walmart needed to bring us back to heteronormativity by that commercial, you know, in, in case you were too enchanted, in case you were too involved with the with the sort of beauty and mystery of it, you know, they had to bring, and I hated that. And we'll watching te- we'll a cross-dressing Yes, boy. exactly. Yeah, we'll, also, we'll teach you how to fast forward o- over that. Yeah. Uh, yes. Colin, you know, one thing that, I didn't see it, but uh, the one thing that interests me is uh, what the real, what the reason for the popularity of these live events is. In a way, television is going back to its to its long ago roots, um, and the, yeah. the first one I recall was was the I think they did Doctor Strangelove, didn't George Clooney? Uh, wasn't there Doctor? That might be right, although I didn't watch that. That was about five or six years ago, and and I remember the the, the wave of anticipation and part of it a little bit. And I'm thinking about Jock's comment: Why don't we just why don't we just uh, you know show like live at Lincoln Center? Why do we have to recreate this? There are plenty of great theatrical productions going on. Why not just televise them? Clearly, that doesn't hold the same appeal for the audience. The question then becomes, well, why? And and there's something in the nature of of a stunt in doing this. Mm-hmm. And people, when they when when the first one, which was Doctor Strange, I think, uh, came up. I think partly people were watching to see if something terrible would happen. Mm-hmm. You know, can they pull this stunt off? You're in, in in effect, you're giving us television without the whole. Uh, 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 um, weaponry, you know, the television is developing. You're forcing it to do something that it no longer really does. So there has been mm-hmm. this sort of like uh, 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 almost rubbernecking, like, will something terrible happen? And I wonder, you know, maybe we've gotten beyond that now. I didn't see how it was shot. Are they using more and more sophisticated, you know, jump cuts and multiple cameras? Does it yeah. seem yes. more movie-like now in the way it is? This one last night I thought was a jump even from Sound of Music last year in, in terms of what they, they tried Although, to do technically. Like the, the first scene, it seemed to calm down a little bit. They, it was like they were moving the cameras just because they could. And so, like, all the scenes in the Darling's bedroom, it was like the cameras panning you know, kind of nonstop, and it was making me a little seasick. Yeah. yeah we, we have to talk about one aspect of this, too, and it was one that was troubling to Jacques uh, early on, uh, and that was... So in 1954, there are um, Indians, uh, as they're called, uh, in this um, in, in Peter Pan. Uh, their leader is called Tiger Lily. Uh, in uh, 1954, the very blonde but very talented Sandra Lee was cast as Tiger Lily. And I, I remember showing... My son and I watched this, uh, uh, the video of this... The, the you know the old old VHS video of this Peter Pan many many times and I'm he was often very puzzled about Peter Pan's sexuality as well as about uh, why this Indian was blonde um, so uh, first of all and it's not just that she's blonde it's kind of what the, the, her big musical number sounds like this is what it sounds like come on boys shake hands with your new brothers we smoke peace pipes have powwows for when we get in trouble there's just one thing to do I'll just send for tiger lily I'll just send for Peter Pan we'll be coming in willy nilly lily 
And there's, I think, another scene in the musical, as I recall it anyway, where the Tiger Lily and her band of uh, quote unquote savages uh, dance to, and they say, Ugga Wugga Wigwam and Ugga Wugga Meatball and all, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and that, of course, is exactly how Native Americans uh, have always spoken for uh, thousands of years. Um, so, but Jock, I don't know, you sort of, you, you had some concern that they were going to clean this up too much. Well, I mean, I, I thought they would just cut it out altogether. Mm. And so, you know, the, the first hint came, you know, there's part of me that wanted them to put the number in just for the sheer horror of it. <laughs> but when they, um, the first hint came when they were calling it Tiger Lily and her Islanders mm. instead of Indians. And it came, it went really fast. And I, mm. and I put it on Facebook and no one responded. Mm. And I don't think they realized what I was outraged about. But, uh, <laughs> And then they changed the they so they kept in Agawag, but it was like and they gave it a different name, what True Blood Brothers or something, something like that. Um, or uh, but anyway, it it was basically Agawag with less offensive, more vowels or something like well, that. Well, I mean, and to me, I I don't know. I mean, the other thing that they did was they cast a young woman as Tiger Lily who uh, really had almost no theatrical background whatsoever. I mean, she like showed up in New York uh, three months ago or something. Young and not really, I mean, Sandra Lee was fabulous. I mean, she was totally wrong <laughs> in every possible way. I mean, but she was just a fabulous, uh, fabulously talented Tiger Lily and a wonderful dancer and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and once again, I found myself wondering, do they want to make it not too good? Is this part of the idea? It's kind of almost back to Rand's point. Maybe they wanted to never really be too good because they could have gotten a Native American person who's really good. And it's like they almost, I mean, I've almost found myself watching the whole night like thinking they kind of don't want it to be too good. Uh, I don't know what their, the point well, of that would it be. It could have been a star is born moment, but it wasn't. It wasn't. The, the other uh, question I had, given how much uh, tweeting and, and, and sort of simultaneous commentary there seemed to be, more than with other cultural events, is there some way in which this, the simultan knowing that this is live, actually creates for people who are tweeting and commenting in some, some, in some way the sense that, well, I, I'm almost there. It, somehow my comment is going to impact this thing. Well, at least it's happening at the same time. If this had just been a, a movie of Peter Pan, would you have had so much, so, so much avid online tweeting com commentary? Oh, no, going totally. On? Yeah. You want to become part of the event. That's part of the fun. But how, how do you actually become part of the event by doing that? In a way that's different well, from, have, from, from be, if it's a movie. <laughs> yeah. well, you have you to have, have a lot be, of friends. You have to have a lot of friends who are doing the exact same thing as you at the exact same right, time. Because I have friends who make, said they stopped watching the film, stopped watching Peter Pan, but kept reading what I was writing because yeah. they were finding it more enjoyable. But, but my question is why is there something that adheres in the fact that this was live? Let's say they had just done a movie of Peter Pan. Mm -hmm. I think way far fewer people would have done this. So what is sort of talismanic or magical? Or have you, so you haven't ever done it? Then right, what? like right. live live tweeting or live Facebooking. Are you, are you seriously that? asking him? Irene, that? Irene, <laughs> okay. please. Rand goes on. He's on Facebook, but he goes on like once every six months <laughs> for five minutes. No, but I I just think it's great when when you're. That's why I missed it. Like actually, when I was watching it this morning, I went back to Jacques' fake, Facebook page and sort of pretended, you know, tried to get the timing right of when you put things because there is something about. Isn't there something great? Don't you think, Rand? There could be something great about. Everybody's watching this thing together, no, and we're all I'm talking not to issue, each other. I'm not taking issue with that, but I, I'm I'm trying to get at why did a live event 
Because we're all watching that. it at the same yeah, time. Yeah, but if it were a movie, it would be the same thing. Although I think oh, there, you mean a w- movie yeah. on TV but or yeah. something like that? But oh, people don't do that anymore. But in other words, I mean, yeah, if everybody watched Wizard of Oz all at the same time the way they used to, you know, Wizard, Wizard of Oz would come out once a year, right? And the whole nation would. But people don't do that. So you really are looking for events. I mean, when you, live tweeting is, is mostly done about sort of everything from the State of the Union address to the Oscars to uh, to something like this. It has to be done live tweeting or face bitching as uh, as I Jacques really does. hope you trademark that. Yeah. It's really, it's already, I already have friends who are using that. But, so you don't think there's anything special in the fact that this was live. It's just that it was a big event. Well, no, yeah. uh, no, it's special that it's live because it makes everybody watch it all at the same time. Uh-huh. People are tempted to watch I it all at the you. same time. And you can't do this, this face bitching or live tweeting uh-huh. unless every Everybody's on the same page at the same right, time. Yeah, right. I mean, it happens during the Oscars. It happens during, like, well, uh, I, I'm going to say the ones that I do. You know, things like the Oscars, the not, Super Bowl not, halftime not show, not the State of the not Union the address. Stuff, <laughs> not the but stuff on either You think this is ultimately why then they're doing it? I mean, we've talked about other reasons, but that would seem to be the fundamental one. Social right? media, a big part of the the, the strategy. Yes. But um, not, not for it to be quite as negative as, it, th- as but it's been. This is right. a good segue into Willa Paskin's essay, which is the other thing we want to kind of talk about here at the, near the beginning of the show. Um, uh, she, uh, it's sort of about how we live in this culture of obsession. Uh, she said, uh, says, now we are engaged in a near constant cycle of being totally obsessed with a cultural object uh, and perpetually on the lookout for that next binge experience. Why are we getting hysterically excited about very good but not hugely original cultural products seemingly every other month? Why have we turned into complete Impulsive obsession seekers. And she gives the examples of it could be serial, unless it's true detective, or the surprise album by Beyonce, the first season of Girls, the last season of Breaking Bad, Too Many Cooks, that's a viral video, uh, Cronuts, uh, or any of the other crazes that have possessed us in the last few years. Though they feel like manias in and of themselves, they are a lar- part of a larger fad, obsession itself. So, Rand, you did, uh, did have some uh, um, immediate thoughts about this. Well, I had a couple of thoughts, and she um, uh, one I think has to do with the the awesome proliferation of of cultural artifacts, events, happenings, pr- products that we're now confronted by, and 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 that creates a sort of extremely balkanized cultural map. And we've talked about this before, being in the experience conversationally at, at, at a dinner table or even you know, here during a break when we're talking. Five people will talk about the shows that they like. And there are five different shows, and three of the people haven't seen four of the other shows. There's, there's relatively little overlap. Having grown up in the 70s where you know, there were like nine shows and everybody watched them, um, it's always astonishing to me to, to sit in the presence of two friends and, and have them, hear them boost a show that they've been watching for four years. And not only have I never seen it, I've never heard of it. So given this extreme balkanization, you know, there's a way in which we all have to become louder advocates for this like tiny little country that we're representing because you know, it's, it's surrounded by other tiny little countries and we think it's a great country. So you, you get louder, you get more strident, and, and you get more passionate. I think that, that's part of it. Yeah, we have to come, become louder, but we also, I, I think another side of it is feeling uh, so left out. We feel left out. If you, if it's your country and you're talking about it and some of your friends are talking about it and I've never heard of it, then I feel like, oh no, I better get obsessed with it too. You know, so I, I think there's, you know, wh- how do we choose which ones become obsessions? You know, is it just because we naturally find them in some way? No, it's because somebody told us about it. Well, right? you also feel like your particular um, uh, passion, your obsession may cease to exist. 
may well. I mean, I think about some of the TV shows that I've loved and we've discussed here, Friday Night Lights, The Killing. These are shows that would effectively get canceled every year. And then, and then enough, just enough people would make enough noise so that, oh, they'd bring it back for another year. And, and, and I think there's you know, an awareness mm-hmm. that, that uh, I mean, Colin's about to moderate a, a, you know, a panel on the golden age of television. It's such the golden age of television that routinely really good shows just disappear because not enough people are watching them. I think, I think this translated down to the level of individual advocacy is part of the dynamic. I'd say there are a couple of other important inputs, too. But. Well, Jack, Jack, I think one of the other important inputs is you, it's sort of what we've just been talking about vis-a-vis Peter Pan, which is mm-hmm. you can watch something much more enthusiastically than you used to be able to. First of all, you can watch it in real time and be interacting with it, your, your friends mm-hmm. about it or subsequently just using the Internet in various ways to deepen your involvement with whatever you're already involved with. Or you can also binge on it You know, when you look at something like uh, Orange is the New Black, it's all available right up front. So you can completely indulge, you know, as opposed to, you know, uh, after watching seasons one through three of Downton Abbey on DVD, it was like, ugh, I have to wait and wait and wait for the next bit to come along and whatnot. So it kind of worked against my obsession. Right. So there's a structure. Um, the structure allows it now. The structure allows it. And then there's this whole facet of, oh, I can see what other people think about it via social media. I can go look on, you know, look at reviews. I can look at people who have, you know, crazy fan fiction about uh, Lady Mary. And, you know, there's all <laughs> so many different, you know, ways that you can kind of glom onto these obsessions. Although I'm a really bad example of this, because usually whatever is the hot show is something that I that I'm not watching deliberately because it's the hot show. Well, oftentimes it's on pay channels that I don't have, um, and oftentimes I'll associate it with people I don't like, or you know I'm like you mean I'll fans, fans of the kinds of people who like it are not the people that you want to be talking to. Yeah, yeah, and so and then I'll or. You know, it's like I'll I have like the first two seasons of Breaking Bad on DVD, and I still haven't watched them. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you can define yourself in this balkanized world. You can also define yourself as somebody who deliberately does not. You know, I've never watched Breaking Bad. That's a definition of self. Well, she right? makes the point it's, in the article that very few people will go uh, around talking about their obsession with uh, uh, the Big Bang Theory. So that that these obsessions tend to be particularized tastes that in a way are validating to the person who purveys them to someone else. So there is also this this sort of this connoisseurship to this. That is, here's this thing that you know you don't yet know about and and I am now going to tell you how great it is and and convince you. Uh, so there there is this slightly competitive aspect to these obsessions when there are so many, well, competing ones. I think connoisseurship is a great word for it, too. I mean, I, I think that's absolutely the case. And it is – the other thing – we have to take a quick break here, but and maybe we can continue this a little bit on the other side. But um, our number, by the way, 860-275-7266. I do think to, – to something that Jacques said is something that I've been thinking about, too, which is – the way you used to have to wait, you know, like I, I think back to being a child and I loved comic books and I was like a comic book junkie. But there would come a time in the month where I had read every new comic book 
the, the the latest issue of every comic book that I that I followed or read, and even then gone on to buy a few comic books that I didn't even like very much, just because I was so desperate. And then you just have to wait and wait and wait. And there was nothing you could do. You had there was nothing you could do. You just have to wait. I mean, you could do. Well, and you three years ago, right here, said <laughs> they now have the technology to be able to give us all of these shows as soon as they're produced. Right. They should monetize that at a premium yeah. price. And 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 yeah, you know, no, like I, a year right. later, House of Cards happens. started. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> the, the, what, what I did, and I still think that they, they, at the end of any episode of Homeland, they could say, if you'd like to, you know, it's, there's another one coming up next week. But if you'd like to watch the next one right now, <laughs> give us ten dollars. And here's some crack cooking <laughs> yeah. too. Uh, so but that. but but beyond that idea of waiting that way, also you can. Serial is a pretty good example. Okay, so Serial is the podcast to end all podcasts. Uh, one podcast to rule them all. Uh, but it only has a million people listening to it right now but the people who are listening to it really like it a lot but you and, and they come out every week and we, there was a two week wait during Thanksgiving they didn't do a new one but you can do so many things during that intervening time there's a podcast about the podcast that you can listen to there are so many different websites where people are developing different theories about the same case you know, you never have to wait you can go do other things we have to take a quick break we'll come back with maybe not more of this we may have to switch over to Ayelet Waldman after this See, uh, we just had an interesting off-stage conversation about Serial, and it makes me think we have to do a show about Serial for people who've never listened to Serial and for people who don't do podcasts and stuff. I mean, we have to explain this whole thing somehow uh, because it's – did you have something you wanted to say about that? Or just for you, to do this for you. Okay. So – all right, so uh, we're going to move on, I think, just because our, our time is short. With us today are Rayan Cooper, uh, Jacques Lamar, and Irene Papoulis. Um, so the author, and I have to confess, I never had heard of her before either, but I know she's married to Michael Shabon. Her name is Ayelet Waldman. Uh, she threw a tantrum uh, on social media uh, this week because she, her book was not one of the books that was uh, named as one of the 100 notable books uh, of 2014 by the New York Times. So every year the New York Times does this list of books, and you sort of look at it and you realize how few of those books, if any, that you've read. Unless I mean, Rand has probably read a whole bunch of them. But um, So Ayelet Waldman starts a tweeting on December 2nd. I am really not dealing well with having failed to make the New York Times notable book list. Love and Treasure, that's uh, her book, is an effing great novel. She, her, this, these tweets are often... Uh, laced with profanity, which I will not reduplicate. I never complain about this blank. This is now a new tweet. Now, I never complain about this blank, but there are many books on that notable list with reviews that were nowhere near as good as mine. Uh, Now here's a new tweet. What do they mean by notable? How does a book that got a decidedly mediocre review count as notable when one with a a good one doesn't? Uh, So, I mean, she goes on and on and on. This is so uh, effing demoralizing. You pour your heart into your work. You get awesome reviews, and then someone decides it's not notable. Uh, and then eventually she announces she's not going to do uh, – she's not going to be such uh, a whiny person anymore. She's going to do something else. Then she announces that she's going to do some kind of scholarship match uh, for every pre-order that she gets for her book right now. And this is um, punctuated with uh, F, the effing New York Times. So she's going to be – do something wonderful in the world for, for something called scholarmatch.com. Uh, and she's uh, going to do that this in order to indicate her hatred and contempt uh, for the New York Times. So um, who wants to go first? You want to go first? Uh, 
Yeah. Well, first of all, I want Randall to... go last because he's actually been on the list of 100 notable books in the New York Times. All right. Well, my first response to that is welcome to my world. You know, like I think there's some if you're used to feeling like the best that like you're one your your book is going to get published. Sounds like she's had a pretty comfortable, a pretty good career in terms of getting her writing out, getting good reviews, having people talk about it. Then you can believe that sort of that first of all that you're really good and notable writer you know necessarily and also that there's some kind of justice in terms of who gets noted you know then it has nothing to do with other factors you know but those of us who have trouble getting published don't have connections write a book and can't even get it out there know that there's that that we you know that feeling happens all the time and it's not necessarily because we're not better you know we're not as good as the books that come out it's for many many other reasons so it seems like she's getting a taste of that I can't help but read it first as though she's getting a taste of the reality that there's so many factors that go into what gets chosen as a notable book beyond even what's good and not to mention the fact that there are many many other good writers you may be imputing to her a level of thoughtfulness that I don't entirely see in those tweets, but uh, but but Jacques, uh, <laughs> I loved reading it. I loved reading it, and then she wrote kind of this apology on Facebook, uh, which then I was upset to read because I was like, "Oh, you speak your truth," and then you know her publicist probably speed dialed her and told her to take the tweets down. But <clears throat> I actually wrote to her this morning after reading them. And said, good on you. And uh, she wrote back and said that I had made her day and she agreed to come to the Twain house next year. Ah. Yeah. Well, was there, was there, is some of it, I mean, the truth is we know that conversations like this go on all the time. Uh, in other words, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been the least bit surprised if somebody told me, yeah, when I yelled at Wellman didn't make those, she and her husband, Michael Chabon, sat around talking about what a joke the New York Times uh, list is and what a bunch of jerks they are. I mean, because that, that's what people do, right? I mean, they just don't do it publicly. That, that, and, and was that some of the joy that you got out of it? It was like sort of seeing people yeah, talk the and, way they really talk? Yeah, yeah not, and, you know, I didn't necessarily think that she was unhinged, but, you know, <laughs> that I, I felt like, you know, that's part of what's fun about reading social media, you know, is that that it's there to get your immediate like, you know, damn, this burger is good kind of <laughs> thing out there. And so, you know, the fact that she unloaded on, you know, probably the worst uh, victim that she could have picked, you know, for her career, uh, I thought was, you know, crazy brave in a weird way. I also, I love Jacques' new strategy for booking guests for the Twain House. Find somebody who's really getting kicked around right now. Say something nice to them when they're at their lowest emotional point and so psychologically fragile. It came from a a, a loving place and she (laughs) was appreciative. That's how I got Juan Williams, by the way. After you people fired him. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but I moderated that one. So yes, I made you up did. for it. Uh, all right. So, um, so Rand, you have a, a unique Olympian perspective on all this, having had a book on the list of 100 notable New York Times books. Well, right. So long ago, one one hardly remembers. But I think if you, I think you two have have really nailed this. Um, we we live in a cultural moment that uh, prizes instantaneity and spontaneity above all, and we've we've structured our lives around powerful devices that supply it. So live by the sword, die by the sword. Uh, in the same way that we love hearing about, or, or perhaps not, that great burger someone had, um, we, the, the, the device happened to be flipped on, because it always is, at a moment when precisely the same kind of venomous, toxic 
outflow that embittered writers have have lava like emitted, you know, since forever, but has then been, as you say, Colin, you know, confined to the kitchen, the kitchen <laughs> rant with one's spouse when that bad review comes out, and that therefore never gets broadcast. That stuff is now is broadcast. Uh, and the, the the pathetic, the pathos of this what this woman went through, and it did have a sort of narrative arc to it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's like watching a squirrel that's been run over, you know, by a car, <laughs> and is now is now in its death throes, and then survives and and limps off. And you love the little squirrel. I mean, um, is she the squirrel? Yes, or is she's, the she's, she's the squirrel. And you know, uh, one wishes that she hadn't encountered that vehicle. But by living with her device always switched on and ready to record whatever outburst she has of joy, of gratitude, sex with my husband, oh, horrible review. It's all going to be out there now. So if you don't insulate yourself, if you don't put something literal between you and your device, then you're going to have to go through the the, 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 the arc of experience she went through. I, I, I felt for her. I mean, you did too. You invited her. It, it all worked yeah. out well for her. Yeah. And you felt bad for it too, because you identified with her. I could be, well, because I, I identified with that feeling of frustration, but and at the same time, it made me want to think: Yeah, how do they choose those books? You know, what does go into what who, you know what they consider a notable book? Who is in charge of it? You know, and so in a way, it's a call for more transparency there. If they, you know, right, and that's the other thing because she's keeping score. I mean, all writers have found ways to try to do this, but now we actually, because so much is quantified. So, you know, you're able to know how many people have been on this website. Uh, and, and at one point in her, in her, in her Jeremiah at Against the Times, she says, how is it that a book makes the list of 100 most notables that's had a lower review count than a book <laughs> like mine that, that doesn't get in? So there is this quantification of all of our cultural endeavors uh, and uh, that, that, you know, is, is, is now just a standard part of, you know, cultural well, reckoning. And, and not to mention corruption, right, of, you know, who – knows who and who reviews who and who, you know, it, it, it's not really about how good is the book. That leads to the question, of, you know, do you trust sort of the, the, the taste of the cultural mavens who used to preside unchallenged, you know, atop the, the, the heap of cultural production? And now, now, because there's been, you know, this democratic uprising from below, we always have these interesting confrontations. This is, this is another form of that. I think also one, one thing that happens in the book world these days is – you know, uh, we did a show that worked a little bit off the National Book Awards recently, and I did reach out to a bunch of writers and kind of asked them, because I don't really follow the National Book Awards. I was sort of asking them just for a little bit of background on it or background on the books. or I can't even remember what question I asked. But what I got was this incredible cascade of paranoia and labyrinthine uh, conspiracy theories and notions about powerful publishers and agents who can sort of do certain things for certain people. I mean, it was sort of amazing how much there was of that. But it made me think it's partly because there's less of everything to go around in literature these days anyway. You know, if you haven't written The Vampire book du moment, if you haven't, you know, if you're not just absolutely on top of the pyramid, you're really fighting over scraps at this point. And, and so <laughs> people fight more voraciously uh, maybe than they ever did before. Can I just mention, by the way, that because of this conversation this morning and, and reading her thing, uh, you know, that I went and looked at, at the list of the 100 most notable, I'm like, oh, we've got Marlon James coming, mm-hmm. who has a uh, brief history of seven uh, killings coming. Yeah, mm-hmm. coming next week. 
And then I'm like, oh, we've got Phil Clay coming who – Just won the National Book Award. Which I was not aware he had won the National Book Award. I had asked before he was a National Book Award winner. <laughs> and so – These I, are terrific authors you're getting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, – and he didn't even complain about anything, Phil Clay, and I still asked him. So uh, – <laughs> But you got him – he hadn't won the National Book Award. He was vulnerable. Not, yeah. He and was sitting around is, thinking, I've never won a National Book la- Award. Last you call. year, uh, oh, who, who was – James McBride won the National Book Award. And we were having all this great back and forth about trying to get him because his book is practically Huckleberry Finn. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he won the National Book Award, we couldn't couldn't get him. Mm-hmm. Buy low. Hmm? Buy low, sell high. Exactly. It's it's capitalism. All right. We should take a quick break. Maybe when we come back, as we're doing endorsements, maybe we can even all collectively endorse the essay that uh, Rand sent us to about uh, rice versus wheat. I don't think we can have a detailed, granular, as it were, conversation uh... about it. <laughs> I am furious at the New York Times. Did you see the obituaries today? I am way more interesting than those people, but you know, it's not what you've accomplished, it's how dead you are. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are John Francois and Colleen Mason. Sir Ray Hardman appeared in the intro, and so did Greg Hill, who tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mary Martin. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff's audition tapes for the NBC Live version of Oliver, visit our website at WNPR.org. On Monday's show, The Scramble hashes out the news of the weekend. And now, back to Colin. I hear the Faith Middleton Show staff's uh, rendition of Food Glorious Food is not to be believed. Um, All right, so um, we're going to do endorsements right now, but maybe we can begin our endorsements with something that Rand sent us. I think a lot of us like this. This is a a piece uh, from the much-hated New York Times uh, about the difference between wheat culture and rice culture. Rand, I'll, I'll let you uh, sum it up for it's us. by a Stan- Stanford anthropologist named uh, T.M. Lerman, who's writing I, I Like a Lot. And she, um, she, po- she cites a study, I think, that posits this is sort of pop uh, culture sociology, I guess, that, that, that posits the difference between societies that are organized traditionally around rice production and those organized around wheat growing. And that there are two types of personality and two types of world outlooks that go with these. Essentially, rice, which requires irrigation and a complex uh, coordination of different farmers and adjacent plots working together, that that is a um, uh, produces a, a kind of personality that's much more um, geared toward cooperation with others, much less individualistic, whereas wheat growing, because all you need is a big field that you preside over and water and sun, that the wheat-growing countries are much more individualistic. And she traces this both through different cultures and within regions of China where they gave sort of tests, these funny tests to people like, you know, someone has to fill in a a questionnaire and you give them, offer them five pencils, four are orange and one is green. Do they pick an orange or do they pick the one green pencil? So all these these kinds of tests designed to show these. So so the, the the wheat personality and the rice personality. So highly speculative, but fun to read. I loved this, actually. And I'm now, instead of saying cultural imperialists, I'm going to call people wheatists. <laughs> um, 
But I don't know if anybody else wanted to. Well, yeah. I just felt like I, I, I like the 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 I love the rice culture and the idea of it, but I I'm I think I'm an inveterate wheat culture person. I would take the I would take the pencil that didn't fit. You can't change. <laughs> uh, you can't change your grain. Um, I'm team quinoa. You can't go against. Yeah, <laughs> you can't go against your grain. All right, it's time for endorsements. Uh, Irene Papoulis, what do you have? Okay, I have two. One is Citizen Four, the movie for anyone who thinks Williams uh, Edward Snowden is not a patriot, um, or who wonders what it was like in that hotel room in Hong Kong. It's kind of claustrophobic, but it's really interesting, and it's playing at Real Art Ways this weekend. Did, how, how many of us have seen Citizen Four? Just you and me, I guess. Okay, because I. I I mean, I think it's a very important documentary to watch. I didn't think it was a very good documentary. I thought it was important rather than good. And they were very lucky that, lucky that Edward Snowden can hold a close-up. He turns out to be kind of filmable. You know, he's not just this weird little geek that you wouldn't want to. I mean, he's got a certain amount of charisma. He's a reasonably good-looking guy, and he's articulate. So. But, ha- yeah, halfway through I was thinking, wait a minute, this doesn't seem like it's that good. But then I, then I made this idea that it was like the claustrophobia of it, sitting there watching him sitting on a hotel room bed and, t- and typing on his computer for like 10 minutes turns out i mean you could i think what thought ended ultimately was kind of interesting as opposed to just like oh come on hurry up cut it you know all right what's your second anyway the second one is um Dvorak's seventh symphony which is playing at the hartford symphony right now i mean i love carolyn kwan so much that i don't usually go when she's not conducting but they have a guest conductor named william eddins who's wonderful and it's just a magnificent symphony and it's a great performance and it's all weekend and i highly recommend it all right Jacques, what have you got um, I am currently obsessed with Edith Piaf, so I recommend that people go listen to some Piaf. That's it? Is it you're not even going to tell us a specific song? or uh, Well, just, you know, I... Just get your Piaf on. Uh, <laughs> you know, my, my favorite is The Hymn to Love. Mm-hmm. It's such a beautiful song. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm contemplating writing a piece about her, and so it's, it's you know, I've been really kind of... Immersing myself and making my husband crazy. There is only so much French chanson one should inflict on a loved one, but he's well. pretty much hit max. <laughs> All right. Okay, Rand, what have you got for I us? I have two restaurant suggestions, and they combine quality with quantity mm-hmm. in optimal forms. One, uh, the new restaurant, a new restaurant is open in Manchester, out in sort of Buckland Nowhere Land, called ABC uh, Artisanal Burger Company. It's the latest restaurant from Dorian Puka who owns Treva in West Hartford and Aver, also in West Hartford. I was there for the opening party the other night, and they served a poutine in a, in a bowl that was as, uh, half as big as this. It weighed, it weighed 150 pounds. They had five people carrying this out to the, out to the uh, buffet. The second gluttonous place to go is... Which is usually poutine is a Canadian... is a Quebecois specialty with, with French fries and this tub? horrible brown gravy and cheese curd. I think it's terrible. Um, but it is the food of Jacques Lamar's food. It is. Um, and then the second gluttonous <laughs> experience you have to have is Bear's Smokehouse in downtown Hartford, opened a few months ago. Its owner, Jamie the Bear McDonald, is a professional competitive eater. He won the Wing Bowl in Philadelphia last year, a competition in which he ingested 287 chicken wings in 30 minutes. He won a national oh competition. Yes, imagine that. Wait, and he's he, a bodybuilder. Th- just eating off the bone? Yeah, you know, you just suck it down off the oh. bone. But we listen. Did, we, we did a whole show about competitive The, the, the brisket and the burn. He's from Kansas City. And he makes not only brisket, but a burnt ends, which you know is the, 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 the point end of the brisket that's cut off. Uh, and a dish that was discovered by the food writer Calvin Trillin 
like 40 years ago in an essay he wrote in Playboy about uh, Arthur Bryant's uh, barbecue in Kansas City. The brisket and the burnt ends with the Kansas City-style molasses-based sauce at Bear's Smokehouse downtown is some of the best barbecue I've eaten anywhere in this country. It is, it's cheap. It's inexpensive. It's casual. It is so good. You you got to go. And and he's opening a new one in Windsor in tomorrow Windsor. night. Right. That's right. All right. So um, I haven't, we haven't done many, many noses lately because of just holidays and other things. So I'm way behind on endorsing things. Um, I, I will. I'll endorse. Uh, first of all, I'll say yes. Uh, tomorrow night, as been, has been alluded to, uh, Mitch Hurwitz, the creator of Arrested Development, and Tim Gunn from Project Runway, and uh, Ben Skilligan, uh, the creator of Breaking Bad, and I will be on stage at the Connecticut Forum. There are tickets available. Connecticut Forum tickets available. You know how to get them. So that's tomorrow night. Uh, I think it really will be a, an interesting conversation about the modern state of television or the state of modern television. Television. Um, I, I'll do a sort of a, a qualified endorsement of the movie Whiplash, uh, which is still playing here in Hartford. It was uh, had the coveted opening spot at Sundance last year. It's a movie about uh, a drummer and his abusive mentor, who played by J.K. Simmons, who will be talked about for Oscar nominations. It's a flawed movie, it's, it, and I've, I've written on, online about what the flaws are in it, but it's still a very entertaining movie. And uh, the performance, those two performances are amazing, and this young director's ability to shoot musical performances in a way that's really interesting and exciting, and you feel like you're watching Rocky or something, is re- really good. There's, there's some things about the movie that are really fantastically stupid, but I, I won't even tell you what they are. Um, <laughs> Um, Grayson Hugh, Hugh, whom you'll be hearing in a few seconds here, has a Kickstarter for his next CD. We want to make sure that you know about that. If you love Grayson Hugh, uh, help him fund that album, Grayson Hugh, on Kickstarter. Last thing, uh, the documentary, Lost Songs, The Basement Tapes Continued. It's on Showtime right now. I'm sure it'll be available in other ways. It goes behind the scenes of this project in which they took Bob Dylan's uh, lyrics that had ne- from the basement t- tapes, but a bunch of lyrics that didn't have any music. And the great T-Bone Burnett assembled this band of Elvis Costello, Rhiannon Giddens, Taylor Goldsmith from Dawes, Jim James from My Morning Jacket, and Marcus Mumford from, of course, Mumford & Sons. He put together this super band. He put them in a studio for two weeks, and he told them to write music for this uh, and and to record it, to create a CD, which they did. But what you really see are – it's an incredible portrait of creative people and what their anxieties are like. And there there are all these uh, – different interpersonal dynamics going on. Um, The CD is very interesting that they did. There's at least one song that they wrote 20 different versions of, and there were all these insecurities about whose version was going to get picked, and, you know, was Elvis too much a better songwriter than everybody else? It's just watching these people go through this process is just fascinating. So if you can see Lost Songs, The Basement Tapes Continued, or if you prefer to get the CD, uh, which is, I think, called Lost on the River something, something, something. And it's intercut with the, the existing footage from the actual basement tapes sessions that Dylan did so many years ago. So that's very interesting, too. All right. We're done. Thanks to Rand. Thanks to Jacques. Thanks to Irene. We'll be back on Monday with The Scramble. Here's Grayson. Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm Kyone Wolf. I don't understand why Wendy went with Peter to Neverland. I mean, if she'd listened to Jack Donaghy, she would have remembered never go with a hippie to a second location.